Let's breathe in and breathe out. We're about to get into an Imani state of mind. I'm Dr. Imani Walker. I've been practicing as a psychiatrist for over 10 years. I know that so many of y'all don't know where to start when you want to talk about your mental health. On Imani State of Mind, I'm going to have those conversations with you. Imani State of Mind is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Are you a woman over 40? Do you believe that this is both the very best and the very worst time of your life? Are you looking to find the humor in being this age and some insight into what it all means? Then check out Everything is Fine, a new podcast for women on the other side of 39. Hosted by Lucky Magazine founding editor Kim France and podcaster Tally Abacassis, each episode digs deep into the identity shift that comes with navigating what can be an alternately weird and liberating stage of life. A chat show with interview guests from the media and entertainment worlds, Kim and Tally combine fun subjects like fashion over 40 and beauty tips with big subjects like menopause and anger. It's a great listen, empathetic, insightful, and most of all, entertaining. So subscribe to Everything is Fine wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Actually, I think I was just born dancing, and that's all I ever wanted to do in life. I know what you like. <laughs> now, why can't you be friendly? But I am being friendly. No, I mean it. Friendship's much more lasting than love. It's called, uh, um. What's keeping you awake? Dreams. Bad dreams. I don't see how any home can be complete without children. Born dancing. I'm sorry this had to happen. Today we're going to talk about a movie that came towards the end of Joan Crawford's career, and which has done more to define later generations' ideas about who Crawford was than perhaps any other movie that she was actually in. It was also one of the films Crawford was asked about the most, and about which she had the most complicated feelings. As she put it, I know why the picture shouldn't have been made, and I know why it had to be made. I was lonely, worse than lonely, bored out of my skull, and I needed the money. I'm afraid I have bad news. We'll probably have to sell the house. You aren't ever going to sell this house. And you aren't ever going to leave it. I didn't forget your breakfast. 
I didn't bring you breakfast because you didn't eat your dinted. <laughs> oh, Blanche. You know we got rats in the cellar? You wouldn't be able to do these awful things to me if I weren't still in this chair. But you are, Blanche. You are in this chair. Please. Don't do this to me. Jane. Jane, please. <laughs> Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is the linchpin of the final chapter of Joan Crawford's film career. And almost 40 years after Crawford's death, it's the film that has become probably her most iconic to younger generations, who weren't around to witness her stardom in real time. It's a movie that's become all the more notorious because of the meta-quality attributed to its story and casting. A thriller about two former stars with a historically antagonistic relationship to one another, whose forced cohabitation leads to mortal combat. Baby Jane was savvily marketed so that audiences believed, rightly or wrongly, that they were seeing some version of reality playing out on screen. Nowadays, it's basically taken as a given that Joan Crawford and Betty Davis not only hated one another, but would have actually been happy to have been given license to kill one another. How real was the feud between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford off-screen? Today we'll trace their relationship from the beginning, through the production of Baby Jane, and to the finish line of their careers. Join us, won't you, for the fifth chapter in Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford and Betty Davis lived parallel lives with many similarities and some significant differences. Both had their brightest and most uncomplicated years of stardom in the mid-1930s. Both took four husbands and adopted children who they later disowned. More on that next week. And both actresses became known for playing what historian Janine Bassinger called exaggerated women. Stars who specialized in playing women who were larger than life in a literal sense, in that their characters' lives could not accommodate the size or intensity of their ambitions, emotions, neuroses, or desires. This was perfect for films of the 1930s, but as time marched on and Davis and Crawford both gradually got older, and audiences began going into their movies with a calcified idea of what a Joan Crawford or Betty Davis performance would give them, their very presence could only overwhelm whatever dramatic situation the film tried to put them into. Betty Davis was a little bit younger than Joan Crawford, and she arrived in Hollywood a few years later, once the silent era was over and done with. But the actresses were still united in what was to that point a unique experience for a Hollywood star. Most of the performers who had been really big stars in 1920 were not still really big stars in 1940. 
The transition from silent film to sound film had a lot to do with this, as did a number of other changes in the industry and the wider culture. Mary Pickford, who we've used throughout this series as an example of the first generation of Hollywood stars, the generation that preceded Joan's generation, became a star around 1913, when she definitively chose movies over theater, had her peak years between about 1917 and 1922, and limped to the end of her career in the early 30s, stalling out for good in 1933. So that's 20 years, give or take. 20 years after Joan Crawford arrived in Hollywood, she was making Mildred Pierce. She'd continue to make movies almost every year for the next 25 years. There was no model for this. No one had ever been a movie star for 45 years, let alone a female movie star whose fame, as Joan's was, was initially built on a foundation of sexual appeal. There's a really reductive, but not entirely inaccurate, way of explaining why older actresses have historically been sidelined in Hollywood while a constant stream of young, fresh women are cycled in. And that's that, for most of its history, Hollywood has been run by men, and movies are, as a work of both art and commerce, a medium that plays on fantasies. And the men who run things fantasize about having sex with young, unspoiled women, and not women who are the age and have the maturity and life experience of their own wives. This is part of it, but if it was the whole story, stars like Crawford and Davis and Barbara Stanwyck would never have survived on screens for as long as they did. And both Davis and Stanwyck were able to work even longer than Crawford because in the 1970s and 80s, they successfully transitioned to television. These female stars stuck around because they didn't just appeal to the male gaze. They inspired fantasies in women, and they were able to continue to do so long after male producers and male viewers had moved on to fetishizing the new crop. They did this by modeling to women a way of being that many viewers could not have pulled off in their real lives, because it would involve not giving a shit what the men in their lives were to say or think. This was something that Joan Crawford was very aware of. I can tell you one thing Betty and I had in common, Crawford said after she had retired from movies. Our roles put men off. There was a major difference in how they pulled this off, though. For a while, Crawford had been able to model female fantasies of independence and power while also presenting an image that was attractive to men. But Betty Davis always struggled to conform to the standards of Hollywood beauty. Her reign as a queen of romantic melodrama was propelled less by her inherent glamour and more by the evident work it took her to appear glamorous, thus making her a perfect avatar for the women in the audience who longed for the adventurous life, or maybe just what they perceived to be the easier life, of the born beautiful. The fact that Betty Davis was on her best day an eight in a profession in which women are supposed to be a perfect 10 every day was as much a part of her star persona as Joan's less than classy background was part of hers. They were both seen as powerful women who went into the game with a disadvantage and that in itself 
took some of the bite off of their power and made them more accessible. That said, Crawford was born gorgeous and worked hard to present an impeccable image of herself for her entire time in the public eye. While Davis was born slightly less gorgeous, and she eagerly sought parts that allowed her to explore what it was like to be a woman in the world and not have beauty available to her as a weapon. Many of Betty Davis's most famous catty comments about Joan Crawford seem to stem from a combination of resentment and pride over this difference. She was frequently quoted saying some version of this, Miss Crawford is a movie star, and I am an actress. This annoyed Crawford to no end, but she had her own version. When Betty Davis had made a move on Crawford's then-husband, Francho Tone, while they were working together on the film Dangerous, Tone turned Betty down. And as we've talked about in our episode on Tone, this was because, as Joan liked to say, he thought Betty was a good actress, but he never thought of her as a woman. Certainly, there were plenty of men who did think of Betty Davis as a desirable woman, but as both Crawford and Davis got older, even if there continued to be romantic elements to their movies, there was a sense that they were thought to be desirable at an advanced age, in part because of a collective memory of who they used to be. This collective memory could be used against them, too, as it was in the one film they appeared in together. Joan first worked with director Robert Aldrich on one of her favorite later career films, Autumn Leaves. Aldrich had refused to make changes Joan asked for to that script, which didn't exactly put him in the actress's good graces. But Aldrich won her over during the shoot with his genuine emotional reaction to her work. Biographers Lawrence Cork and William Scholl claimed that Crawford came up with the idea of casting Betty Davis as her sister and rival in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and that she approached Davis about it after seeing her in a Broadway production of The Night of the Iguana. Davis's account confirms that Crawford visited her backstage to talk about the project, but only on the request of Aldrich, who was in Italy and couldn't meet with Davis in person himself. Aldrich says the casting was his idea, but he gives Joan quite a bit of credit. I never had anyone else in mind but Joan and Betty for the picture, said Robert Aldrich. And then Joan talked Betty Davis into being Baby Jane. Even if she made the trip only on Aldrich's orders, the fact that Joan reached out to Betty suggests that there was no serious tension between the actresses before they made this film despite the fact that she would have had at least two examples she could have pointed to of instances in which Betty Davis had previously sought to undermine or undercut her. There was Davis's acknowledged attempt to seduce Crawford's then-husband, and then there was The Star. Released in 1952, The Star was a movie written by Catherine Albert, an old friend of Joan's, with whom the actress had had a falling out when Joan convinced Catherine's daughter to marry a man the mom didn't approve of. Albert allegedly wrote the screenplay as retaliation, intending it as a thinly-veiled attack on Joan. Not only did the movie exaggerate Joan's struggles to keep her career going past her sell-by date, 
But Betty Davis was cast as the aging actress in Joan's mold. But Crawford doesn't seem to have taken the star as a serious attack. She would forever insist that she had no reason to consider Betty to be her rival, which was itself a way of throwing shade at Betty. As Crawford explained it, Betty and Joan spent most of their careers playing different kinds of roles. This was true, and the difference could be spun either way. Betty wouldn't have been considered for the films Joan made that were about being a desired woman. Whether it was an early, flighty heiress flick like Untamed or Love on the Run, or a later, more serious film like Daisy Kenyon, although Betty could have played the character Joan played in Sudden Fear. But Joan would never have been considered for films like Now Voyager, in which Betty started out dowdy and then transformed, because the audience wouldn't believe Joan could be dowdy. Joan never would have landed a film like All About Eve, because it would have seemed incredible that Joan Crawford could have been a formidable stage actress. Joan Crawford played rich women and poor, romantic victors and failures, but she couldn't play a Betty Davis part. We'll never know whether or not Joan had the talent to pull off the kinds of roles Betty took on, but we do know that no one gave her a chance. If anything, it seems like it was Davis who was concerned about Joan undermining her on set. She would have had a right to be concerned. She surely would have heard stories of Joan's rivalries with other actresses on the set of Johnny Guitar and other movies. Before she agreed to make the film, Betty met with Aldrich and asked him whether or not he and Crawford were sleeping together. It wasn't that I cared about his private life, or hers either, Davis said. That's a matter of taste. I didn't want him favoring her with more close-ups. He definitely did not. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane plays out along lines similar to other horrors of Hollywood stories, particularly Sunset Boulevard, but it's at once more epic and more claustrophobic. It begins in 1917. Baby Jane Hudson, a prepubescent, ringleted blonde with a grating little girl voice, is a vaudeville sensation, and nearly life-size dolls made in her image are selling like hotcakes. Jane has a precious daddy's girl on-stage persona, but off-stage, she's a terror, mean and greedy and selfish. A typical Jane tantrum ends with her brunette sister Blanche in tears, and their powerless mother gives the non-famous daughter a pep talk. I don't care! I want an ice cream! Now, Janie, I told you... I want it! I make the money so I can have what I want! Now, Janie, that's enough! Well, if you need an ice cream, I I guess you better have some. I mean, it's pretty hot and all. But remember, this is the last time this week. All right, Daddy. Blanche wants some, too. We gotta have some ice cream for Blanche. Uh, I I don't want anything. What do you think you're trying to do? I always say it's the parents' fault in cases like this. I'm really disappointed. Sure is a hot day today. You're the lucky one, Blanche. Really, you are. 
Someday it's going to be you that's getting all the attention. And when that happens, I... I want you to try to be kinder to Jane and your father than they are to you now. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. I hope you'll try and remember that. I won't forget. You bet I won't forget. We don't get to see the sisters before this moment. We don't know if Jane was born bad or if show business made her that way. We don't know if Blanche would have otherwise taken so easily to the role of victim with steely resolve if it hadn't been foisted on her. The film to come will spin on the discrepancy between the real Jane and Blanche and the versions of themselves that they perform, which gets further layered thanks to what we think we know about the stars that we bring with us to the viewing experience. But this first scene of the movie establishes so much. The way show business commodifies youth and bestows superhuman power on stars, but also the mistake made in treating stars like they're different from normal people. Because once they cross that line, they don't know how to go back to being normal people. The movie then jumps 18 years into the future. Adult Jane and Blanche are now both movie actresses, but Blanche is a star and Jane is a flop. Male movie executives discuss the sisters as they watch actual footage from some of Betty Davis's early films. They now consider the previously profitable Jane to be completely disposable. But Blanche has it in her contract that for every movie she stars in, Jane has to be featured in a movie, too. The movie men debate how to manipulate Blanche to get her to turn against her sister. In the next scene, a female figure walks in front of a luxury car to open a gate. There's an accident. The film will soon jump almost 30 years into the future to catch up with Jane and Blanche, now played by Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, in the present day. But first, the credits roll. This break for the opening titles gives the viewer a chance to pause and reflect on the fact that the first 12 minutes of this movie took place in the past. When the film begins again and presents us with circa 1962 Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, it forces us to consider the latter-day incarnations of these actresses juxtaposed with their past selves, to look on their decay very natural in the case of Crawford, extremely exaggerated through makeup and performance in the case of Davis, and find that decay pathetic. About half of the rest of the movie is taken up with Jane's delusions that she could relaunch her childhood vaudeville act 45 years on. But we see Blanche and Joan in dialogue with the past, too. A local television station starts showing Blanche's old movies, And the wheelchair-bound Blanche, crippled in the accident we saw glimpses of just before the credits, watches alone in her room, spellbound at the sight of her younger self. You want to tell Papa your troubles? Somebody you love? Jack, please try to understand. I married you because I was knocked silly, and it was a refuge. I found out tonight that this boy's in trouble. Maybe alone. It was blinding. I can't think of anything else. 
Oh, he should have held that shot longer. I told him that when we were rehearsing also when we shot it. Oh, he wouldn't listen. Still a pretty good picture. The film within the film here is Sadie McKee, one of those 1930s melodramas in which Crawford's then-husband, Francho Tone, waits around the whole movie for her to decide to love him. Given Crawford's continued affection for Tone and the commentary Blanche gives regarding the director, this seems to me like the moment in the film where the line between Joan and Blanche dissolves the most completely. To say too much more about what happens and whatever happened to Baby Jane would be to spoil the pleasures and horrors of watching the film. Before watching it in the research for this episode, I hadn't seen the movie in 20 years, and it was completely different from my memories. I had remembered it as a lot of people seem to think of it, as something to be appreciated through the lens of camp. But I don't think that's a fair interpretation of the movie, which throughout its two-hour-plus running time is consistently complex in the way it depicts both sisters, the damage they do to one another, and the insanity inspired by fame. Crawford has arguably the more difficult part because she's passive all the way through the film. At the end, she makes a shocking, devastating confession, but by that time her character is dying and is so weak that Crawford has to convey the most hurtful thing she's ever said to her sister through a barely audible croak. Betty Davis got the Oscar nomination, and that's probably because she did the most acting. But even so, you can't dismiss her performance as pure excess. There are times in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane that you actually find yourself rooting for Jane to get away with something. And it's only then that you realize the extent to which Davis managed to humanize what could have been a purely grotesque character. I haven't been able to find any credible stories of incidents on the set of Whatever Happened to Baby Jane that would suggest that the actresses were at each other's throats during filming. And there is one important fact that should have compelled each actress to remain on her best behavior. Even with both Betty and Joan on board, Aldrich had trouble finding a studio that would finance the movie. Finally, Seven Arts agreed to take Baby Jane on, but only through a deal that included almost no upfront payment for the principals, in exchange for hefty percentages once the film turned a profit. Because of this deal, both Davis and Crawford, neither of whom were getting any younger and neither of whom were in a position to sneeze at a payday, both had an incentive to make whatever happened to Baby Jane the best and most successful movie it could be. The stories I've read about their relationship suggest that both actresses fused aspects of their characters in the film with their real lives and continued playing those characters after filming. Maybe in part because they thought it would be good for the movie, and maybe just because they liked it. For her part, Crawford claimed she had no sense whatsoever of a rivalry going into the shooting. I can't speak for her, Crawford would later say. I can only speak for myself. And doing that, I can only say, I didn't have a feud with her. 
If there was animosity between them, Joan insisted, it wasn't her fault. Joan claimed that she had tried to be friends with Davis, and by way of initiating that friendship, she had sent Betty chocolates and flowers at the start of the film and received no response. When asked about this, Betty Davis basically rolled her eyes and was like, that is so Joan Crawford. Davis thought this attempt was disingenuous, and she had grounds to feel that way. Crawford's image as a strong, often solitary woman on screen, though often at odds with the vulnerability and shyness she felt off-screen, had one important parallel with her real life. Joan Crawford, like many of her characters, did not have a lot of close female friends. She was close to Barbara Stanwyck, so close that some observers believe they were lovers, and also to Myrna Loy. But these friendships were never really tested through the arduous production of a movie. None of Joan Crawford's girlfriends ever had to share the spotlight with her. If they had, they might not have been her girlfriends anymore. Davis thought that Crawford's very act of giving gifts was, in her words, insincere. And in her mind, it was so typical of Crawford, who Betty thought was concerned with appearances to a fault. Betty Davis was proud of how bad she had allowed herself to look in Baby Jane. She'd point out that Joan had chosen the less grotesque part, as though this was a character flaw on Joan's part. Joan's tactic when speaking about Betty Davis was generally to act as though she never gave the other actress a thought, whereas Davis never seemed to tire of commenting on or directly criticizing her Baby Jane co-star. Davis told her and Crawford's mutual biographer, Charlotte Chandler, that Davis kept picking on Crawford, quote, because she had absolutely no sense of humor, absolutely none. Then I must say, I noticed poking some fun was a good attention-getting device, and I was never adverse to getting a little extra attention. When I read this quote, after having already read many more from both Davis and Crawford on one another, another celebrity feud came to mind, a much more contemporary one. Betty Davis is basically Kanye West, who can't resist dragging Taylor Swift into his art in part because he knows that she just cannot stop herself from reacting to it. And this keeps both of them in the spotlight. And Joan, not understanding the game Betty was playing, just kept being like, I'd rather prefer to be excluded from this narrative. When all was said and done, Joan insisted that she respected Betty Davis more than she hated her. She can be such a bitch, Joan said late in life but she's so talented and dedicated and honest. The feud, such as it was, was encouraged by the studio's publicity department. According to Joan, the actresses failed to give the PR men much to work with on set. They weren't best friends, but they kept their claws to themselves. The animosity definitely intensified after filming was finished beginning with the announcement of the Oscar nominations. Betty was nominated, and Joan was not, and what Joan did next was perceived by many as an attempt to right that wrong. Joan approached every nominated actress and offered to accept their statuette if they were unable to accept themselves. 
No one thought that this in and of itself was anything but generous at the time, Betty included. She assumed that she would win, and she was certainly not going to be absent on the evening in question. So what did she care? What she perhaps didn't know was that Anne Bancroft, who was nominated for the Miracle Worker but couldn't attend because she was appearing on Broadway at the time, took Joan up on the offer. And as it turned out, Bancroft won. Later, Davis partisans would allege that Joan had actively campaigned for Bancroft to ensure that Joan would be in the spotlight on Oscar night, while Betty sat helplessly watching. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was such a huge, immediate hit that it recouped its costs after 11 days in theaters. And both Betty and Joan, who had those deals entitling them to a share of the profits, made a lot of money. It was a much-needed victory for both women. Just two months earlier, Davis had put an ad in Variety soliciting acting work. Situations wanted. Woman artist, it read in part. 30 years experience as an actress in motion pictures. Mobile still and more affable than rumor would have it. Wants steady employment in Hollywood. Has had Broadway. After Baby Jane, both Joan and Betty found themselves in demand for a new wave of horror thrillers. For Joan, the high point of this third phase of her career was Straight Jacket, produced by William Castle. Castle would later attempt to buy his way into semi-respectability by becoming the rights holder turned producer of Rosemary's Baby. But in 1964, he was best known for inventing marketing gimmicks that outshined the movies he produced. It was William Castle who sent a skeleton floating over the audience during showings of the original House on Haunted Hill, and who installed vibrating seats into movie houses that played his film The Tingler. Five years later, Castle's gimmicks were wearing thin, and when he signed post-Baby Jane Joan Crawford to a two-picture deal, he decided to go straight. No pun intended. Straightjacket was the story of a reformed murderess who was released from an asylum years after killing her husband. It was released without any kind of marketing gimmick, and it was extremely successful. And then, Robert Aldrich approached Crawford and Davis about starring in a film that would aim to repeat the success of Baby Jane, called Whatever Happened to Cousin Charlotte. The plot would have the actresses reversing their previous roles. This time, Joan would be the manipulative aggressor, conniving to turn Davis's southern spinster mad in order to take control of her estate. Joan was keen to do it. She still needed the money. But in order to get Betty Davis to sign on, Aldrich had had to agree to make her a producing partner. And Crawford believed Davis tried to exclude her from the beginning. Joan was paranoid that Betty and Aldrich were sleeping together just as Betty had been regarding Aldrich and Joan before Baby Jane, and Joan's suspicions that she was being given the opposite of star treatment at Betty's request were given some credence when, for some reason, no one was sent to pick Joan up from the airport when she arrived in Baton Rouge for location shooting. It only got worse from there. Davis was, probably rightfully, still annoyed by what she perceived as Joan's manipulation of Oscar night if not the Oscar voting, 
And in retaliation, Betty apparently started trying to divide the cast and crew into a Davis camp and a Crawford camp. Joan had trouble holding on to even her natural partisans, crew members with whom she had been friendly for years, because by 1964, her insistence on carrying herself and being treated like the Duchess of the MGM lot seemed so ridiculous. Betty had begun contemptuously referring to Joan as Miss Crawford. On the last day of the location shoot, everyone packed up and went back to the hotel and left Joan on set in her trailer. Joan believed that this was a cruel joke played by Davis, who she also believed was essentially directing the film herself, or at least maneuvering to have Joan's part cut to a minimum. Whether she was doing any of this stuff or not, Davis was essentially successfully doing what was done to her character in the movie, driving the other woman mad in order to get rid of her. Joan returned to Los Angeles and checked herself into a hospital. Though various physical ailments were used as excuses for the studio, Joan wasn't really suffering from much other than the exhaustion that went along with humiliation. She had spoken to a lawyer, and she knew she couldn't get out of her contract to do the movie, so she essentially decided to hide out in a safe space from which they couldn't force her to work, but where she could be in touch with Aldrich and try to get him to make changes to the script. It seems like this hospital stay began as a power move, but at some point, Joan became convinced she was really sick and that the doctors just couldn't figure out what the problem was. She returned to set, but said she could only work a few hours a day and needed to spend the rest of her time at home resting. Aldrich had her followed to make sure she was really at home resting. Then Joan checked back into the hospital forcing production to shut down. Joan apparently assumed that if she stayed in the hospital long enough, the production would have to be shut down for good. This was indeed what would have happened, if Aldrich had allowed it to. Instead, during this hospital stay, Aldrich and co. decided that they had had enough, and they recast Joan's part. Olivia de Havilland, who had appeared in several films with Betty Davis before marrying a Frenchman and moving to Europe, was convinced to step into Joan's shoes. Aldrich himself flew to Switzerland and spent four days pleading his case before de Havilland agreed to go to work. Joan alleged that no one, not Aldrich, not anyone involved with the production, had told her that she was replaced. The director, she railed, didn't even have the balls to come and tell me that to my face or even over the phone. I had to hear it over the radio. After she had retired from the screen, Joan disowned every film she made after Baby Jane. They were all terrible. Even the few I thought might be good, she later said. I made them because I needed the money, or I was bored, or both. Joan Crawford made her last film, the B-horror Trog, in 1970. She spent the last seven years of her life living alone in a New York City apartment, rarely making public appearances, although she did venture out for the occasional lunch with friends, and she did allow several journalists to visit her. One of those journalists asked her about the rumors he had heard, that she had a drinking problem. 
Crawford answered with remarkable candor. Yes, I have a drinking problem. I really think alcoholism is one of the occupational hazards of being an actor, of being a widow, and of being alone. I'm all three. I like to think it started after Alfred's death, but I'm afraid it began well before that, when I used to fortify myself before a Pepsi sales meeting, or one of the luncheons or dinners we either gave or attended. I'm not a public person. I used to have a few before I had to meet the press, way back in Metro. But when does a problem get to be a problem? I'm afraid I crossed over the line when baby Jane was being shot. Then the drinking worked its way into the production schedule. That was such a bitch. When Joan was 69, Pepsi dropped her as a spokeswoman. Late in life, she felt as though she had been forgotten. And at the same time, she felt that the image of Joan Crawford was too much in old age for her to live up to. Not that she would have wanted a seat at the table in 70s Hollywood. She looked at American popular culture in bewilderment. She understood that there was no place for a star of her breed. In one late interview, she grumbled, Hell, if Marlon Brando raped Tatum O'Neill in broad daylight, the public would just say, So what? I think Tatum would say, So what too? There was only one American actress of the 1970s who, Joan Crawford said, could have fit in during the old days. Of all the actresses, to me, only Faye Dunaway has the real talent and the class and the courage it takes to make a real star. Within a few years, Joan would be gone, and Faye Dunaway would be playing Joan in a movie that is probably better known and more seen today than any film Joan herself actually appeared in. We will discuss that film next week in the final chapter of Six Degrees of Joan Crawford. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our production and research assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our editor is Sam Dingman, and our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. If you like the show, please help us tell people about it. You can tweet at us at Remember This Pod and find us on Facebook and Instagram too. Rating and reviewing the show on iTunes really helps people find it, as does subscribing to it on the podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. Good night.